0: You've wandered into Snarky Owl's Menagerie of Shadows, a growing collection of spooky stories, tales of terror, and fantastic folklore, both real and and imagined pull up a chair sit closer to the fire or bury yourself beneath the bedclothes as the shadows surround you today's visiting shadow comes from true irish ghost stories by Sinjin St. d seymour and harry l nelligan originally published in 1914 PART TWO OF CHAPTER ONE HAUNTED HOUSES IN OR NEAR Dublin. Marsh's library, that quaint Old World repository of ponderous tomes, is reputed to be haunted by the ghost of its founder, Primate Narcissus Marsh. He is said to frequent the inner gallery, which contains what was formerly his own private library. He moves in and out among the cases, taking down books from the shelves and occasionally throwing them down on the reader's desk as if in anger. However, he always leaves things in perfect order. The late Mr. O'Reilly, who for some years lived in the librarian's rooms underneath, was a firm believer in this ghost and said he frequently heard noises which could only be accounted for by the presence of a nocturnal visitor. The present tenant is more sceptical. The story goes that Marsh's niece eloped from the palace and was married in a tavern to the curate of Shepellazod, she is reported to have written a note consenting to the elopement, and who had then placed it in one of her uncle's books to which her lover had access, and where he found it, as a punishment for his lack of vigilance, the archbishop is said to be condemned to hunt for the note until he finds it, hence the ghost. The ghost of a deceased canon was seen in one of the Dublin cathedrals by several independent witnesses, one of whom, a lady, gives her own experience as follows. The canon was a personal friend of mine, and we had many times discussed ghosts and spiritualism, in which he was a profound believer, having had many supernatural experiences himself. It was during the Sunday morning service in the cathedral that I saw my friend, who had been dead for two years, sitting inside the communion rails. I was so much astonished at the flesh and blood appearance of the figure that I took off my glasses and wiped them with my handkerchief, at the same time looking away from him and down the church. On looking back again, he was still there, and continued to sit there for about ten or twelve minutes, after which he faded away. I remarked a change in his personal appearance, which was that his beard was longer and whiter than when I had known him. In fact, such a change as would have occurred in life in the space of two years. Having told my husband of the occurrence on our way home, he remembered having heard some talk of an appearance of this clergyman in the cathedral since his death. He hurried back to the afternoon service and asked the robestress if anyone had seen the former canon's ghost. She informed him that she had, and that he had also been seen by one of the sextons in the cathedral. I mention this because, in describing his personal appearance, she remarked the same change as I had with regard to the beard. Some years ago... The family had very uncanny experiences in a house in Rathgar, and subsequently another in Rathmines. These were communicated by one of the young ladies to Mrs. M. A. Wilkins, who published them in the Journal of American SPR, from which they are here taken. The Rathgar house had a basement passage leading to a door into the yard, and along this passage her mother and the children used to hear dragging, limping steps, and the latch of the door rattling. But no one could ever be found when a search was made. The house bells were old and all in a row, and on one occasion they all rang, apparently of their own accord. The lady narrator used to sleep in the back drawing room, and always when the light was put out she heard strange noises, as if someone was going round the room rubbing paper along the wall, while she often had the feeling that a person was standing beside her bed. A cousin who was a nurse once slept with her, and also noticed these strange noises. On one occasion, this room was given up to a very matter-of-fact young man to sleep in. And next morning, he said that the room was very strange, with queer noises in it. Her mother also had an extraordinary experience in the same house. One evening, she had just put the baby to bed, when she heard a voice calling, Mother! She left the bedroom and called to her daughter, who was in a lower room. What do you want? But the girl replied that she had not called her, and then, in her turn, asked the mother if she had been in the front room for she had just heard a noise as if someone was trying to fasten the inside bars of the shutters across. But Mother had been upstairs, and no one was in the front room. The experiences in the Rathmines house were of a similar auditory nature, i.e. the young ladies heard their names called, though it was found that no one in the house had done so. Occasionally it happens that ghosts inspire a lawsuit. In the 17th century they were found to be actively urging the adoption of legal proceedings but in the 19th and 20th centuries, they play a more passive part. A case about a haunted house took place in Dublin in the year 1885, in which the ghost may be said to have won. A Mr. Waldron, a solicitor's clerk, sued his next-door neighbour, one Mr. Kiernan, a mate in the merchant service, to recover 500 pounds for damages done to his house. Kiernan altogether denied the charges, but asserted that Waldron's house was notoriously haunted. Witnesses proved that every night, from August 1884 to January 1885, stones were thrown at the windows and doors, and extraordinary and inexplicable occurrences constantly took place. Mrs. Waldron, wife of the plaintiff, swore that one night she saw one of the panes of glass of a certain window cut through with a diamond, and a white hand inserted through the hole. At once she caught up a billhook and aimed a blow at the hand, cutting off one of the fingers. This finger could not be found nor were any traces of blood seen. A servant of hers was sorely persecuted by noises and the sound of footsteps. Mr. Waldron, with the aid of detectives and policemen, endeavored to find out the cause, but with no success. The witnesses in this case were closely cross-examined, but without shaking their testimony. The facts appeared to be proved, so the jury found for Keenan the defendant. At least twenty persons had testified on oath to the fact that the house had been known to have been haunted. Before leaving the city and its immediate surroundings, we must relate the story of an extraordinary ghost, somewhat lacking in good manners, yet not without a certain distorted sense of humor. Absolutely incredible though the tale may seem, yet it comes on very good authority. It was related to our informant, Mr. D, by a Mrs. C, whose daughter he had employed as governess. Mrs. C, who is described as a woman of respectable position and good education, heard it in her turn from her father and mother. In the story, the relationship of the different persons seemed a little involved, but it would appear that the initial A belongs to the surname of both Mrs. C's father and grandfather. This ghost was commonly called Corny by the family, and he answered to this, though it was not his proper name. He disclosed this letter to Mr. C's mother, who forgot it. Corney made his presence manifest to the A family shortly after they had gone to reside in Charing Street in the following manner. Mr. A had sprained his knee badly and had to use a crutch, which at night was left at the head of his bed. One night his wife heard someone walking in the lobby. Thump, 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 as if imitating Mr. A. She struck a match to see if the crutch had been removed from the head of the bed, but it was still there. From that on, Corney commenced to talk and he spoke every day from his usual habitat, the coal cellar off the kitchen. His voice sounded as if it came out of an empty barrel. He was very troublesome and continually played practical jokes on the servants who, as might be expected, were in terror of their lives from him. So much so that Mrs. A could hardly induce them to stay with her. They used to sleep in a press bed in the kitchen, and in order to get away from Corny, they asked for a room at the top of the house, which was given to them. Accordingly, the press bed was moved up there. The first night they went to retire to bed after the change, the doors of the press were flung open and Corney's voice said, Ha ha! You devils! I am here before you! I am not confined to any particular part of this house! Corney was continually tampering with the doors and straining locks and keys. He only manifested himself in material form to two persons, to Agnes, who died with fright, and to Mr. A, Mrs. C's father, when he was about seven years old. The latter described him to his mother as a naked man, with a curl on his forehead, and a skin like a clothes horse. One day, a servant was preparing fish for dinner. She laid it on the kitchen table while she went elsewhere for something she wanted. When she returned, the fish had disappeared. She thereupon began to cry, fearing she would be accused of making away with it. The next thing she heard was the voice of Corny from the coal cellar, saying, There, you blubbering fool, is your fish for you. And suiting the action to the word, the fish was thrown out on the kitchen floor. Relatives from the country used to bring presents of vegetables and these were often hung up by Corny like Christmas decorations round the kitchen. There was one particular press in the kitchen he would not allow anything into. He would throw it out again. A crock with meat and pickle was put into it and a fish placed on the cover of the crock. He threw the fish out. Silver teaspoons were missing and no account of them could be got until Mrs. A asked Corny to confess if he had done anything with them. He said, "'They're under the ticking in the servant's bed.' He had, so he said, a daughter in West Street, and sometimes announced that he was going to see her and would not be here tonight. On one occasion, he announced that he was going to have company that evening, and if they wanted any water out of the soft water tank, to take it before going to bed, as he and his friends would be using it. Subsequently, that night, five or six distinct voices were heard, and next morning, the water in the tank was as black as ink. and Not alone that, but the bread and butter in the pantry was streaked with the marks of sooty fingers. A clergyman in the locality, having heard of the doings of Corney, called to investigate the matter. He was advised by Mrs. A to keep quiet and not to reveal his identity as being the best chance of hearing Corney speak. He waited a long time, and as the capricious Corney remained silent, he left at length. The servants asked, Corney, why did you not speak? And he replied, I could not speak while that good man was in the house. The servants sometimes used to ask him where he was. He would reply, The great God would not permit me to tell you. I was a bad man, and I died the death. He named the room in the house in which he died. Corney constantly joined in any conversations carried on by the people of the house. One could never tell when the voice from the coal cellar would erupt into the dialogue. He had his likes and dislikes. He appeared to dislike anyone that was not afraid of him and would not talk to them. Mrs. C.'s mother, however, used to get good of him by coaxing. An uncle, having failed to get him to speak one night, took the kitchen poker and hammered the door of the coal cellar, saying, I'll make you speak. But Corny wouldn't. Next morning, the poker was found broken in two. This uncle used to wear spectacles, and Corny used to call him derisively four-eyes. An uncle named Richard came to sleep one night, and complained in the morning that the clothes were pulled off him. Corny told the servants in great glee, "'I slept on Master Richard's feet all night.' Finally, Mr. A made several attempts to dispose of his lease, but with no success, for when intending purchasers were being shown over the house and arrived at Corny's domain, the spirit would begin to speak, and the would-be purchaser would fly. They asked him if they changed the house, would he trouble them. He replied, "'No, but if they throw down this house, I will trouble the stones.' At last, Mrs. A. appealed to him to keep quiet, and not to injure people who had never injured him. He promised that he would do so, and then said, Mrs. A., you'll be all right now, for I see a lady in black coming up the street to this house, and she will buy it. Within half an hour, a widow called and purchased the house. Possibly Corny is still there, for our informant looked up the directory as he was writing, and found the house marked vacant. Near Blanchardstown, County Dublin, is a house occupied at present, or up to very recently, by a private family. It was formerly a monastery, and there are said to be secret passages in it. Once a servant ironing in a kitchen saw the figure of a nun approach the kitchen window and look in. Our informant was also told by a friend, now dead, who had it from the lady of the house that once night falls, no doors can be kept closed. If anyone shuts them, Almost immediately they are flung open again with the greatest violence and apparent anger. If left open, there is no trouble or noise, but light footsteps are heard, and there is a vague feeling of people passing to and fro. The persons inhabiting the house are matter-of-fact unimaginative people who speak of this as if it were an everyday affair. So long as we leave the doors unclosed, they don't harm us. Why should we be afraid of them? Mrs. Murphy said. Truly a most philosophical attitude to adopt. A haunted house in Kingstown, County Dublin, was investigated by Professor W. Barrett and Professor Henry Sedgwick. The story is singularly well attested, as one might expect from its being inserted in the pages of the Proceedings SPR, as the apparition was seen on three distinct occasions, and by three separate persons who were all personally known to the above gentlemen. The house in which the following occurrences took place is described as being a very old one, with unusually thick walls. The lady saw her strange visitant in her bedroom. She says, Disliking cross-lights, I had got into the habit of having the blind of the back window drawn and the shutters closed at night, and of leaving the blind raised and the shutters open towards the front, liking to see the trees and sky when I awakened. Opening my eyes now one morning, I saw right before me, this occurred in July 1873, the figure of a woman stooping down and apparently looking at me. Her head and shoulders were wrapped in a common woolen shawl, Her arms were folded, and they were also wrapped as if for warmth in the shawl. I looked at her in my horror, and dared not cry out lest I move the awful thing to speech or action. Behind her head I saw the window and the growing dawn, the looking-glass upon the toilet table, and the furniture in that part of the room. After what may have been only seconds of the duration of this vision I cannot judge, she raised herself and went backwards towards the window, stood at the toilet table, and gradually vanished. I mean, she grew by degrees transparent and that through the shawl and the grey dress she wore I saw the white muslin of the table cover again and at last saw only that in the place where she had stood. The lady lay motionless with terror until the servant came to call her. The only other occupants of the house at the time were her brother and the servant, to neither of whom did she make any mention of the circumstance, fearing that the former would laugh at her and the latter give notice. Exactly a fortnight later, when sitting at breakfast, She noticed that her brother seemed out of sorts and did not eat. On asking him if anything were the matter, he answered, I've had a horrid nightmare. Indeed, it was no nightmare. I saw it early this morning, and just as distinctly as I see you. What, she asked. A villainous-looking hag, he replied, with her head and arms wrapped in a cloak stooping over me and looking like this. He got up, folded his arms, and put himself in the exact posture of the vision whereupon she informed him of what she herself had seen a fortnight previously. About four years later, in the same month, the lady's married sister and two children were alone in the house. The eldest child, a boy of about four or five years, asked for a drink, and his mother went to fetch it, desiring him to remain in the dining room until her return. Coming back, she met the boy pale and trembling, and on asking him why he left the room, he replied, Who's that woman? Who's that woman? Where? she asked. That old woman who went upstairs, he replied. So agitated was he that she took him by the hand and went upstairs to search, but no one was to be found, though he still maintained that a woman went upstairs. A friend of the family subsequently told them that a woman had been killed in the house many years previously, and that it was reported to be haunted. Thank you for listening to this episode of Snarky Owl's Menagerie of Shadows, be sure to visit us again as we share the shade from deep in the forest. Subscribe so you don't lose your way in the dark, and bring a friend to share the darkness with you. Until next time, we'll be waiting in the woods, listening to the whispers of shadows. Ooh, 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 ooh.